scripture, uh, scripture lesson comes from Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. John, in his vision, says this, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole land marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over it to every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, let the, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Heavenly Father, be with us as we look at your scriptures, as we look at the word. Give us encouragement that your son has slain the beast, that he's thrown him into the pit, and that we now rule with him on the ascended throne, that we are at his right hand, and that this world and its kingdoms are his alone. We thank you for all these things and ask for your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned last week on my first sermon on reading Revelation rightly and reading it rejoicingly, I noticed, I mentioned that reading the book of Revelation can be tough. Uh, I said that last time that most people think the book of Revelation is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside a burrito, that's right, or an enigma. But the first sentence of the book says that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, often that throws us off because the word revelation is apocalypse, and we think apocalypse, we think of apocalypse now, we think of uh, all those uh, Babylon, apocalypse, whatever, and we think, okay, fantasy literature and miracles and darkness and all that kind of stuff. But that just means a revelation, a revealing of Jesus. So the book of Revelation is meant to be understood by the reader or the listener. It was meant to be understood by those seven churches that it was sent to in chapters 2 and 3. And it's meant to be understood by you today, the descendants of those churches. So let me continue to give you some simple clues or helps. I don't want to sound gimmicky. Some interpretive keys to understanding and enjoying the book. Clues and things that come out of the book. I don't want to import stuff into it. But before I give you some new ones... Let's just briefly review last week's. The first one was this. Believe the text. And that's in chapters 1 and chapter 22. 
believe the text, believe John, believe Jesus when he says these things must soon take place. That when he was writing that audience, it was soon to take place. Men's uh, party, men's night is soon to take place. Believe me, it's going to happen this Friday. And if you miss it, if you're not there, you're going to miss it. That's what he's saying, okay? These things must soon take place. Or the time is near for the men's night. Or that it is a blessing to the one who receives the notice of men's night and reads and heeds it and shows up. Yeah, that's what's happening. There's a sense of urgency to it. Okay, You're supposed to put it into practice because it was written to those in the first century. Now, at least six times, the book makes that point at the beginning of the book and at the end of it. Chapter 1, three times, and about six times in chapter 22, the, the book ends, it's uh, repeated. It's just like Matthew 24 34, 35, where Jesus says, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. They're not going to die until they all took place. And in fact, they all did take place before that generation died. So believe the text. Second key was that John saw himself alive in the tribulation. There's a definite article in chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, was in the spirit your brother and partaker in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance or in Christ. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. But he was in the tribulation. The very tribulation that Jesus mentioned several times in Matthew 24. When they came out of the temple, the disciples said, Jesus, look at the beautiful stones in the temple. And he said, you see all those? They're going to be torn down. They get across the valley. They say, tell us when that's going to happen. They've been here a thousand years. You can't do that. When is that going to happen? When is the end going to be? And then Jesus tells them the end. That's when the tribulation occurs. Uh, There will be tribulation. I read those verses. You can go back and read them. So John is talking about near events in his day. And he tells you that because he's in the middle of that tribulation that Jesus talked about. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. The third key, when you see the word earth, change it to what? To land, that's right. And that de-universalizes it, brings it from the whole world down to the land of, of, of Judea or Judah or Jerusalem or the temple. Uh, and it also uh, defuturizes the book. Because when did a third of the world get burned up or a third of the earth? It hasn't happened, so you think it must be future. All right? So change the word from earth to land in your mind or in your Bible. Cross it out. That's what I did in mine because it shows up a lot. If you cross it out, you'll go, oh, yeah, land. Unless the context is comparing heaven and earth, okay, up above, down below. The Greek word gase can be translated either way. In fact, let me give you a couple other examples where translators get it obviously correct, uh, where land refers to Israel or Judah and not the earth. Matthew 2.20. The angel said to Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the earth of Israel. That doesn't make sense, does it? Go to the dirt of Israel. Go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Okay, he left Egypt and went to the land of Israel, just up the road, 40 miles. Mark 15, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole 
land until the ninth hour where Jesus was hanging on the cross. It didn't get dark in Mexico. Okay, it got dark there where the people were under judgment and Jesus was bearing that. Uh, there's some other verses. Uh, Acts 13, 19. Uh, Paul is talking and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So make that change. Um, that's the, that was the third key. The fourth key was this. Understand that the terms Sodom and Egypt and Babylon the Great refer to and apply to Jerusalem and the people of Israel really and symbolically. They're terms that express a reality. Jerusalem has become as wicked as Sodom, as wicked as Egypt, as wicked as Babylon the Great. She was Babylon the Great, even worse than Babylon, okay? Because she knew better. She had the law, all right? It refers to them, uh, and I say really and symbolically, not geographically. Why? Because Israel and Jerusalem of John's day, in their false worship, resembled those places and so received uh, destruction. Uh, where were the two witnesses killed? In Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified. And the text is clear here. You uh, don't have to say, is this literal or is this symbolic? It gives us the truth. And their dead bodies of the two witnesses will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. There's only one place where Jesus is crucified. That's Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem. The fifth key, Revelation was, is about the last three, three and a half years of the 40-year generation that Jesus mentions in Matthew 24. All these things will take place before this generation. And remember, generations are roughly 40 years. 40 is a number of testing, right? Uh, there are 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, it rains for 40 days on Noah's Ark. Uh, Moses on the mountain. He's being tested. The people of Israel being tested. Where is this guy? All right, He's lost. Got eaten up by a mountain lion or something. Okay, We don't know what happened to him. All right. It's the last three and a half years of that 40-year generation. And that 40-year generation was given as a time for Israel to repent and to come into the kingdom. Jesus had ministered to them, and now they get a double witness, the Holy Spirit. The acts of the apostles are the acts done in the power of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts. But Israel's hard-hearted. Most of them don't believe. So the book picks up Revelation about where Acts leaves off. The sixth key, the whole book is a worship day, a Lord's Day, that gives you a front row seat on how worship occurs in heaven. And what are we going to sing in a few moments? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The church looks into heaven, sees what goes on, and voila, you have covenant renewal worship because that's what's taking place in heaven, right? There's... What's the outline of the book? Chapter 1, Call to Worship. Confession, chapters 2 and 3. The, 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 the uh, churches are confronted with their sins. Chapter 4 through uh, 19, you have the proclamation of the word, consecration through the seals and the trumpets and the uh, bowls of wrath. And then you have the Lord's Supper, or maybe it's 17, if I got that wrong, one of those chapters. And then, uh, the la- 19, the Supper of the Lamb, and that's communion. And then 20, 21, 22 
is take that word, go out, so the nations wash the robes and come into the city and are, are purified and cleansed and have life. All right, that's the whole book. It's a worship service. I just gave you a great outline, the five C's. Accessible and meaningful way to remember the order of the book. It's not, it's not weird. It's not fantasy literature. It's not a huge... Well, actually, it is a huge chiastic structure, but that's another sermon, <laughs> another six sermons. But, uh, but that's a simple outline, and now you have a way to think about the book. Now, here are some four more interpretive helps. Seventh one, the term whole world. When you hear the term whole world, what do you think? The whole world, <laughs> right? The whole cosmos. Now, it's found in three places. If you have your Bible open, go to chapter 3, 10, the first place. It's found in chapter 3, verse 10, 12, verse 9, and 16, 14. That term, the whole world, does not refer to the whole world. It's not the Greek term cosmos, all right? But it refers to the world of the Mediterranean Sea, particularly to the, to the Roman Empire. It's the word that's used in Luke 2.1 when Caesar says, Hey, we need a census. I want everybody counted. And I want everybody in China and Mexico and in Patagonia counted. No. Rome, Rome didn't have Mexico conquered or China. You only have a census where you control the place, right? Beyond that was the barbarians. Where Rome is, is the inhabited earth. And if you read Luke 2.1 in ESV, that's what it says. A census for the inhabited earth. That's what's going on there. It's not the whole world. In fact, it's a Greek term, oikomene, which means inhabited earth, uh, that region around there. So, let me read 3.10 to you. Uh, chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Back up. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the oikomene, the inhabited earth, and to, and to try those who dwell on the land. Because that's what these judgments are about. It's not the whole world. China wasn't being punished in the book of Revelation. Uh, it involves the people of God. And I'll just read to you Luke 2.1 because I think that's the key is it connects it to the Roman Empire. And I'll make points in that in just a minute. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, that the Oikomene, that the Roman Empire, should be registered. He didn't have authority in China to do that. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, Roman protectorate. And all went to be registered, each his town, and Joseph and Mary. Uh, so that's where it is. Uh, let me read chapter 12, verse 9. Just to help you see what this means. Um, and, and this is when there's a battle in heaven. And a great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. No, the oikomene. And he was thrown down to the land. And his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, And what's he do when he gets thrown down? He goes and he attacks the followers of Jesus, the church. Right? He's not going over the whole world. I'm not saying he doesn't, doesn't work around the world, but here it's talking about the land of Israel. And then chapter 16, verse 14, says this, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. 
for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the Oikomene, the Roman Empire, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Are you telling me the Chinese showed up for the great battle of Armageddon on the plains of Israel in 70 AD? Mexicans were there? No. You know, that's ridiculous. This is the nations, the nations that formed the Roman Empire that God is assembling to destroy his wicked people. So it's, it's about the Oikomenes, the kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's statue in Daniel 2. Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome. That is the inhabited globe. Remember, on the outside of that are the barbarians. And all you got to do is watch that movie with what's-his-name fighting the barbarians. And you know they're bad people on the other side of the wall. I can't remember. Russell Crowe. Some Roman movie. Okay. Uh, of course, the Romans in there didn't look so non-barbaric either. Uh, they didn't look much more civilized. Um, so that's the uh, seventh key there is to, that when you see that term, it's not the whole world. That helps de-universalize it. Eighth key, the beast described in chapter 13, which we just read a minute ago, is the Roman Empire, which is a culmination of the statue described in Daniel 2. And it's a composite of those beasts that we read about earlier. Uh, Daniel, uh, or excuse me, Revelation 13, I saw this beast rising out of the sea. What is what is the sea picture throughout the Old Testament? The nations, that's correct, Okay. Uh, with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems. The beast I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's. His mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave his power to his throne great authority. Uh, and it mashed things down. And it was allowed in verse 7 to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Well, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, which was read earlier in verses 1 through 7, guess what is described there? Uh, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Same imagery. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. First was like a lion. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked. And behold, another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up. And after this, I looked, behold, one like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And I saw a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful. It had iron teeth and it broke down and devoured. It was different than all the beasts because it had ten horns and I considered the horns. And that beast also, in verse 27, is given uh, power to um, to uh, uh, destroy the people of God. Verse 21. Uh, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So in chapter 13 of Revelation, this sea beast is the last empire of the Oikomene. It is there when Jesus is, is uh, killed and when he does his ministry. But it's going to be judged. And, and this part of the book is about the judgment of Rome. Not the rest of it. The main focus is the judgment of Judah, the Jerusalem, and the temple. So the sea beast is Rome. And it's the last of the Oikomene empires. Remember in Daniel, Daniel 2, a stone cut without hands comes and hits that statue in its feet. In that fourth 
in, in the feet of the statue, which is Rome, and destroys it, and itself builds up to be a mountain that covers the earth. Now, I want to give you a couple freebies, okay? You don't have to pay for these. Uh, they're just free to help you think about this. You have this first beast in, in 1 through 10, but you have a second beast, and it arises from the land. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the land. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Exercise all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the land and in its habits worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed, performs great signs. This second beast, this is the freebie, this is the high priest of the period. He's dressed like a lamb, all right, like a false savior. And he is a false prophet that serves the first beast, causes people to worship Rome. What did the what did the authorities say when Jesus was being crucified? We have no king but Caesar, okay? And that's what they wanted. This guy's going to destroy our nation. Better for him to die than we lose our place. So they use the Romans to do that. That's what they say to Pilate, okay? That second beast is the land beast, and that is... Uh, the temple worship system and it's going to be destroyed. All right, so land beasts coming, I mean, you know, sea beasts coming out of the sea is Rome and then uh, false worship, the temple system, the land beasts. That's the first freebie. The second freebie is this because everybody always wants to know about the number. 666, right? Okay. I should have like flashing screen up here, right? 666. That's found at the end of this chapter. This calls for wisdom of chapter 13. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number of man and his number is 666. Uh, where does this number first show up? First Kings 10.14. And it's the number of the talents of gold that Solomon imported in the land of Israel when he became tyrannical. All right? He ha- imports 666 talents of gold and then a bunch more. But what also did he import during this time of tyranny? Well, it tells us that he accumulated not only stores of gold, but he imported horses from Egypt, like 14,000, and he accumulated how many wives and concubines? 700 wives, 300 concubines, right? All... Three of those were forbidden for kings to have or to proliferate in. All right? They were supposed to have one wife, not much gold. Horses are not offensive. In fact, what do kings, what do kings ride in Israel? Because they weren't supposed to have an offensive army. They ride what? Donkeys. That's right. You don't go to war on a donkey. Okay? It looks ridiculous. Or a mule. Uh, those were all forbidden in Deuteronomy 17. So what we have is this Roman beast is tyrannical like Solomon. Okay, it's comparing Rome with Solomon. And in the book, Solomon does all that stuff, and then he becomes tyrannical. He begins fighting guys. Because of his disobedience, the kingdom is split in two. And it's split in two until when? Until they come back from Babylon, right? You You have Rehoboam and Jeroboam split in two. And then when you come back from Babylon, you have all these people come back from the various tribes. And guess what happens then? In Ezra 2.13, the sons of Adonikam, 
which means the Lord has risen up. They returned from exile in Babylon. And guess how many are numbered of the sons of Adonikam? Take a wild guess. 666. That's right. That's the other finding of the word number 666. So what does that tell us? Well, Solomon and his tyranny divided the kingdom. There was fratricide between Judah and Israel to the north. But then when it's reunited and they come back from Babylon in the book of Ezra, where Ezra is leading them in worship, that tyranny is finally ended. Ezra is leading as a priest. Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls. The country is united in faithfulness. Now, they weren't perfect. We all know that if you read Ezra and Nehemiah. But that ends that period of tyranny. That's your third freebie. And you can leave donations in the back for that if you want. Okay. All right, the ninth key. Angels. What are angels in the Bible? Well, they're old covenant mediators. They're old covenant workers, servants. Okay? And they're all over this book of Revelation, right? They're doing all kinds of stuff in the book of Revelation. But they're replaced by saints in chapter 20 on the thrones who begin to rule. Now, this tells you the angels getting replaced that... The book of Revelation is a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now, how do we know that angels are servants? Well, you know that because Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 6 that we ought to be able to judge ourselves in the church because someday we're going to be judging the angels. They're going to be working for us, right? For a little while we're under them, but it's going to be flipped. But Galatians 3 also tells us why the law then, Paul says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. It was put in place by angels. Also, when Jesus gives the parables in Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom. And by the way, what is a parable? Is it a wise saying? Can be. But what does parable mean? Judgment. They're sayings of judgment. Okay, so these parables in Matthew 13 are sayings of judgment. Well, Jesus gives one about a guy throwing the word out, and the disciples come and say, well, tell us. What, what do you mean by that? And he answers, the one who sows the good seeds is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. An enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The word is not cosmos. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of the Ionis in Greek, the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. And that sounds like Revelation 19 and 20. The wicked are gathered up and thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever, right? In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? So then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear, guys. This is happening in your generation. The angels are going to come. If you're wicked, you're going to get thrown up and burned. But if you're good, you're going to be, uh, you're going to, you're going to shine like the righteous, like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So angels are old covenant worker, worker bees, and they're coming to destroy the old covenant in the book of Revelation. Uh, you want to be 
left behind, Matthew 13, because those who are left behind are the righteous who shine in the kingdom of their Father. Now, there's one possible exception to who these angels might be in terms of old covenant transitions. And that's in chapters, chapter 1, 2, and 3, where you have angels or messengers to the churches. The word angelos can be, it's anglicized as angel, but it, can, it means messenger. So those angels to the churches could just be messengers that bring the word of God. Could be the pastors. Some think it's pastors. It could be angels bringing them the word of transition because things are getting ready to change and you guys need to repent. So it would be totally appropriate to have an angel come and show up in the middle of worship service and say, dudes, it's time to repent because Jesus is on the throne and things are getting really hot and you don't want to go to the hot, hot place. So repent. All right, that's one place. Lastly, a tenth key is revelation is the revealing of Jesus by the Spirit of God. I've already talked about it's a revealing, but by the Spirit of God. And this is another simple outline of the whole book. I want you to walk away and say, I've got a grasp on the book of Revelation. It's a worship service, just like the five seeds, and you can rattle that off, and now you understand what's going on. But here's another, even simpler outline. In the Spirit, that's used four times. Chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter uh, 17, and chapter 21. The first two times, in the Spirit, Jesus is revealed. That makes sense. It's a book about the revelation of Jesus. He's the groom who's revealed. The last two times, the bride is revealed. But the first bride is bad, apostate Israel. The last bride's you and me, the church who's revealed. Let's look at those. Chapter 1, verse 10. You know this verse. I've already said it many times. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, right? I'm, on the, I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What does he immediately see? He turns to see the voice speaking. Who does he see? A guy in white robe with white hair <laughs> speaking to him with bronze feet and glowing like metal, right? I don't have that look yet. Um, but uh, he sees Jesus is revealed. The next use is in chapter 4, when after this I looked to behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. And what does he see in that picture of chapter 4 and 5? He sees a throne. He sees God on the throne. He sees God has a book in his hand, a scroll, and there's nobody to open it until one that looked like a, sla- a, a lamb that had been slain goes and grabs the book. Everybody's crying because, or he's, he's weeping because there's nobody to open the book. But now the lamb comes and opens it and begins to read. That's Jesus being revealed. And from that chapter on, 6 through 16, Jesus is revealed as the one who judges the world, makes the kingdoms his kingdom. So the first two uses, chapter 1 and chapter 4, are a revelation of Jesus. Uh, the Lamb of God who judges in vengeance, Luke 21. Chapter 17, we have this phrase in the Spirit again, uh, in the Spirit uh, used again, but how is it used? 
17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the land have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the land have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast who was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The beast did. We already saw that. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes of the land's abominations. And I saw the woman, and here's the key, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Where were the saints being killed in Acts 8? Jerusalem. Where was James killed? Jerusalem. All right, that's where, where was Paul killing them? Jerusalem. The blood of the saints. And then through that period, they'll take him and put him in synagogues and think they're doing God a favor. So in the spirit, he sees false Israel, Babylon the Great, sitting on the Roman Empire, uh, where she derived part of her power. Uh, and that's whom he sees. He sees the wicked church, the apostate church, Babylon the Great, drunk with the blood of the saints. Um, and she's going to be judged and destroyed. You can read that the rest of the chapter. That's the apostate bride. When do we see this again? The fourth use of in the spirit, chapter 21. And it's kind of interesting, chapter 21, verse 10. Uh, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Same, or not the same guy maybe, but he had one of the seven bowl holders full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride. So the first guy came and showed him the false bride who had one of the bowls. And now this guy who has a bowl, had a bowl, comes and says, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And that mountain from Daniel 2 that's grown over the whole world. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, great high wall, streets of gold. So the false bride, she was addressed in gems and jewels like the temple was, like the high priest had, but she was apostate. This city, you and me, are dressed in gold and jewels as well and clear as crystal because we're in Christ and we're cleansed in Him. So the tenth key, tenth key is the book is a revealing of Jesus using that phrase in the Spirit. He's revealed as the groom twice and then his bride is revealed, the false bride that he's come to judge and the bride that uh, replaces her or comes after her, which is you and me, the church. couple implications. Implications. Let me close with those. Obviously, this is a book about Jesus. That's all I've been talking about is Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is? Quit reading those books in the Christian bookstores. Okay? Don't go there. Don't waste your money. Uh, that kind of stuff. Get the book of Revelation out. Listen to it on Audible or Canon Plus or whatever. And listen to this. a book about Jesus. You want to know what a real man is like? Read this book. Uh, Doug Wilson, his book, Future Men, a few dads, have boys, 
Or if you have girls, you ought to be reading it to the girls uh, so they know what boys are like. Um, great book. He goes to Jesus. Jesus is the true man. Too many times we see those pictures in our mind of Jesus, right? You know, and he's all white, lily, with long-haired, hippie-looking, and his fingernails are all clean and everything. And his, You know what I'm talking about, that picture? We had one in Virginia where the church we rented from. It was terrible. It had a spotlight on it and everything. Uh, but, you know, he looks like a weenie. But in the book of Revelation, he is bad news. He's the Terminator. And you don't want to, you don't want to disrespect him. So if you want to know about Jesus, read this book. Secondly, leading into that, Jesus is not a lightweight pansy liberal. He judges people. He judges churches. He judges cultures. Um, and he judges the same way in the New Covenant. He judges those who have the truth and who don't believe it, who don't live by it and don't run with it. I think we're going to see further judgment in the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope is saying we can bless homosexual get-togethers now. Wrong. How is Jesus going to bless the church doing that? He's certainly not blessing the Presbyterian Church in USA or United Methodist Church or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. They're all dying and losing members, and they should because they're teaching falsehood. They're hurting people. They're misleading people. They're destroying lives when they fund transgender surgery and all that stuff. Now this means if you want to be faithful to Him... You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not enter the hell that is prepared for you and the devils, okay, as the apostate churches will hear. He judges not only individuals, but churches and cultures. Judge, Jesus judges those who refuse to submit to him as king. Uh, our culture, our churches don't sing the Psalms. We don't think of Jesus as a king. We think of him as a sugar daddy, a nice, soft, overweight guy with a dad bod it was just nice to everybody okay but he's even judging the church and our culture today as we run headlong from him for example the church was just labeled non-essential during covid by our leaders right across the globe i mean it wasn't just an american church that shut down it was across europe and asia you're not essential you can't worship and only a few stayed and worshipped, right? And there's a new book out by them, a bestseller on the New York Times, the three churches in California and Canada kept their doors open. Uh, the guy in Los Angeles, one of them. Um, who? Yeah, John MacArthur, thank you. You know, and he fought him and, and did right. But think of that. That's a great judgment on the church. You're not essential. No, what we do is most important. That's the whole Theopolitan vision. Another shameless promotion of Sunday school. Um, and you're shut out from saying anything Christian on social media. You put something on social media, you're going to get canceled, right? You have this sportscaster as a Christian guy and he's black. And they're trying to cancel him because he made some analogy about Jesus on the cross. You can, and everybody knows he's a Christian. You can't go do that, buddy. You know, uh, the faithful ones are being persecuted because, by and large, the church in America has rejected Jesus as the only Savior and as the King. So Jesus judges the world. And you see that in the book of Revelation. Thirdly, biblical history makes sense. And Revelation is about biblical history. It's about the ending of the Old Covenant. It's not, you know, it's not more than that. It's not fantasy. It's not Hogwarts City and all that kind of stuff. All right? Read the Bible to understand God and His world. History is His story. Uh, 
It's all inspired and it's been preserved for your good and your faithfulness and your growth from glory to glory in Jesus. You need this book and you need to see so that you can reflect Jesus who he is as you make judgments as your eyes. And you need this book as much as you need Ephesians or Romans or Obadiah or Zechariah or Song of Solomon or Proverbs. Fourth, lastly, uh, you need to read this book because it is a breath of fresh Hopeful air. When things are bad, and things do look bad today, this book teaches that in the midst of the mess, and the end of the old covenant was certainly a mess, Jesus is ruling. And Jesus is acting and taking action, bringing joy and order out of chaos and destruction. You have, you have all these martyrs of Jesus who are joyfully going to their death throughout the book of Revelation. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and they're pure. And they're happy to be that way. Remember Matthew 13? After destruction, the righteous will shine like the sun. And that's us. And Jesus is doing the same today. Even as he was ending the old covenant, uh, so that the believing church could be faithful and disconnected to the disobedient and apostate church, so Jesus is bringing about the destruction and death and resurrection of the, of the apostate churches today so that the world can move forward in the Great Commission. Uh, death and resurrection is the way God moves forward. You're not going to be perfected until you die. And then you're going to be perfected and live with Him for eternity. All right? The old order often has to die because it can't be reformed. Each covenant, each Old Testament covenant had to die. Once, once the, uh, the ark was taken out of the tabernacle, it was never put back together. All right? David had to build a tent and then Solomon a temple to put it back in there. Uh, it can't be reformed most of the time. Uh, except each covenant had to die, but the new covenant will always continue because it's built on the indestructible life of Jesus himself. So don't be discouraged about world events. The eyes of faith are fixed on Jesus and not CNN or Kamala Harris or climate change or our criminal government or businesses or Bezos and what he's doing. You know, he's not God. He doesn't own the world and nor does Bill Gates. They're all going to die and they're all going to stand before Jesus. All right. Uh, Jesus brings all rights, all wrongs to right. And he's building a world order that will worship in ways that we can't even remember or can't even imagine. Remember, Christian 1.0, which is Europe, the cathedrals, the United States, uh, other countries, uh, Northern Africa, where the gospel went. Well, 2.0 is going to be so much more glorious, we can't even conceive that, what it will look like. Um, just like each covenant in the Old Testament had no idea what the next one was going to look like how much more glorious and great it was. So the book of Revelation gives you a glimpse of the resurrecting and constructing power of Jesus. He builds new cities that are glorious. I mean, when Volkswagen came out, it was a great car, right? But who wants that when you can have a Lexus or a Mercedes or a Lamborghini? I mean, things get more glorious, and that's what Jesus does. He builds new cities that are glorious, and you and your believing descendants and your fellow believers, all of us here uh, and throughout the world, are part of that new city that Jesus is building and that will be perfected in the end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these encouraging words, for the book of Revelation, how it reveals Jesus. Help us to enjoy it, 
to delight in it, uh, to read it, to meditate on it, to not be discouraged or stumped by it. But help us to remember that it's a good word to them, and it's a good word to us as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.